You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. together the first 18 verses of John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is precious to us, and we acknowledge that it is true. There are things in your word which are difficult for us to understand and fully comprehend. And yet we have to confess that those things, those truths which we love the most, which are most precious to us, are the very things that are also the most mysterious to us. They are truths which are deep and infinite and beyond our ability to fully grasp and understand. We are confronted with a number of those here this morning. We pray that you would send your spirit to give us illumination and understanding in your word, that you would open our eyes and our hearts to behold in your word wonderful things. And may this text serve to comfort us to encourage us, to give us the assurance that comes to those who have been called for your sake and by your name. We pray that you'd be glorified here through our study in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the theme of shepherds and sheep is a theme that is so ubiquitous. It's it's everywhere through both the Old and the New Testament that it is difficult to even imagine reading through the entire Bible without seeing it all over the place. And this goes all the way back to even in the Old Testament, this, this theme of God being the shepherd and his people being his sheep is something that occurs early in Scripture. Back in Numbers 27, listen to what Moses said, May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who will go out and come in before them and who will lead them out and bring them in so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like a sheep which have no shepherd. And all the way through the Old Testament, God is likened to a shepherd and his people to sheep. And periodically God refers to those who are appointed as leaders of his people as shepherds. Men like David and certain kings and the prophets and the priests 
And you find God referring to them as shepherds, and their job was to shepherd the people so that they would not be as a sheep without a shepherd. And so throughout the Old Testament, you see God referred to as a shepherd. And for instance, a familiar psalm, Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You see men like David referred to as shepherds of the people. Psalm 78, verse 70 says he chose David and his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. Psalm 80, verse 1, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. And one of the promises that rings all the way through the Old Testament was this expectation that God was going to appoint over his people a true shepherd, a shepherd with a capital S, a shepherd who would do all of his will and perfectly and fully and unfailingly shepherd his people, the people of Israel or the people that God would give to this shepherd. And so all of the priests and all of the prophets and all of the kings of the Old Testament were mere imitations of this coming shepherd who would fully do just like his great father David had done to shepherd the people, but he would do it even better. So then you get into John chapter 10, and when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, that would ring in the ear of every Jew who heard it. That's a claim to being the Messiah. I'm willing to say that the Lord is my shepherd, but this man says that he is the shepherd of the sheep. This man is claiming to be the one whom all of the prophets looked forward to and promised that God would appoint a shepherd over the people who would unfailingly and fully and finally shepherd his people. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, all of the Jews who heard that understood what he was claiming. It was a claim to deity and it was a claim to be the Messiah. So we've been looking at John chapter 10 and we just got into the first two verses last week. And we've been looking at this analogy in the first two verses Jesus contrasts himself as the good shepherd, the sincere shepherd of the sheep, with the thieves and the robbers. Those were the the men who climbed over the wall, as it were, in our analogy, who had no legitimate access or ownership or right to the sheep, but they sought positions of power and influence within the sheepfold for the purpose of exploiting the sheep for their their own ends. And we saw who Jesus is referring to by thieves and robbers. He is referring to the Pharisees of chapter 9, verse 40 and 41, where they asked him the question, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus answered by saying, yes, not only are you blind, you are blind leaders of the blind, and you are entirely unfit to spiritually shepherd the people of Israel. Then he contrasts, and the the point is to contrast himself with those false shepherds, those thieves and those robbers. And we saw that Jesus is the sincere shepherd of the sheep. Now today we're going to see that Jesus is the summoning shepherd. The summoning shepherd. And this is the point of verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5, you will notice the repetition of the reference to the voice or the shepherd's voice. And we're going to read it here in just a second. Before I read it, I want to refresh your minds as to the picture behind this. Some of you are new here this morning. You weren't here last week to catch this. And I want to, for the rest of you who were here last week, you may have slept through it. So I want to refresh your mind the imagery of what we had, what we're dealing with here that Jesus is alluding to. In all of the cities in the nation of Israel, little towns and villages, there were these high-walled sheepfolds where all of the shepherds from the surrounding regions would come together at night and they would put all of their sheep collectively into the sheepfold. And they would have a hired hand, a hireling, whose job it was to stay in the sheepfold for the night with the sheep and to guard the sheep. And he would shut the door and the shepherds would go sleep and the hired hand would watch over the sheep for the night. This was an enclosure without a roof just walls around it, and the sheep would be safe in there from predators and from thieves and robbers, unless, of course, they crawled up over the wall to get access to the sheep, right? 
That in the morning, the shepherd would come out and the hireling inside, the hired hand inside the sheepfold would hear the voice of the shepherd, recognize that this was somebody whose sheep this was and had legitimate access and rights to the sheep. He would open the door and then the shepherds would stand outside the sheepfold and they would simply call out and the sheep inside the sheepfold would come out each to their individual shepherds. And none of the sheep would go to a shepherd that was not their own because they fled from the voice of strangers. They didn't recognize the voice of strangers. But the voice of their own shepherd they recognized, and in this way the shepherds could quickly and efficiently separate their sheep from all of the other flocks. And then they would lead them out through the door and take them out to pasture by day, and at night they would return back to the sheepfold and the whole process would begin all over again. So that is the analogy that is here. So we looked at the the thieves and the robbers in verses 1 and 2. Now in verses 3 and 4, I want you to notice the repetition of the voice of the shepherd because this is now the role of the shepherd summoning his sheep. Verse 3, to him, the door that is to the shepherd, the legitimate shepherd, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now notice that the word voice is is mentioned in all three of those verses, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. And this is the central feature of this part of the analogy. And the question is this, what does the voice of the shepherd do for the sheep? Because the emphasis is on the voice. So we want to look at what the voice of the shepherd, the true shepherd, provides for his sheep. There are three things in the passage. First, the voice of the shepherd provides a means of calling the sheep to himself. Second, a proof of his ownership of the sheep. And then third, security for the sheep. So the means of his, a means of calling the sheep, the proof of ownership of the sheep, and then third, security for the sheep. And all three of those features are here in our text. And we're going to begin with the first one. The voice of the shepherd provides a means of calling the sheep to himself. Now the analogy or the picture is a real simple one. And you all understand how this would work. The shepherd approaches the sheepfold. He calls out to the hireling inside. And by hireling, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Sometimes we use the term hireling in a pejorative fashion. That's not what I mean. The hired hand inside the sheepfold. And he would recognize the voice of the shepherd, open up the the door to the sheepfold, and the shepherd would call and his sheep would come out through the door and he would lead them out, pull them out, and take them off to pasture. That is the picture behind the, uh, that is the picture behind the text. Somebody asked me, oh by the way, this is by the way, completely aside, somebody asked me this last week a good question. They said, I've heard sermons where people say that there was no door, it was just a walled enclosure, and the shepherd would lay down in front of the opening, so that if the sheep wanted to go in or out, or if a wolf or a thief or a robber wanted to go in or out, they had to step over the shepherd. And they said, I've heard whole sermons developed around that. Has anybody else heard that? Because I have heard that. I have heard that analogy. Some of you have heard that analogy. And this person asked the question, why didn't you say that last Sunday? Why did you leave that out? And the answer is because there was no resource that I had in my hands or my library which gave that analogy or that picture. Every one of them described what I had just described to you there. Now, maybe later on, I'm going to read something that says otherwise, but until that time, we're just going to go with the analogy as it as it presented here. Because in the analogy that Jesus is giving, there's not an entryway without the door. There is a door there, isn't it? Jesus mentions the door. And he says that the hireling opens the door, and the shape sheep come out through that entryway. He doesn't mention anything about the shepherd lying down in front of a sheep. Okay, so what is it that the voice of the shepherd provides for his sheep? He provides, first of all, a means of calling the sheep to himself. Jesus says to him, verse 3, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And they recognize his voice. 
Now, the physical or the picture behind it, the cultural practice is pretty straightforward. But here's the question for us. To what spiritual reality is Jesus pointing to with this analogy? What spiritual parallel is he describing? The shepherd coming up to the the fold that has his flock, as well as all of the other animals from the community that do not belong to him, calling his sheep and the sheep respond to his voice and come to his voice. Here are the questions. What is this voice? How do we hear this voice? How do we respond to this voice? And what are the results of his sheep hearing this voice? That's what we're going to be looking at today. And I want you to notice just a few things, three things from our text. First of all, I want you to notice the certainty that Jesus has that his sheep will respond to his voice. Verse 3, he says that. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. There's no hint of uncertainty in here as, as in he calls out and hopes that his sheep come to him in some way. He hopes he can lure them out. No, no, not at all. He calls... And the sheep come. This is so straightforward of an analogy, it's hard for us to miss. There is simply the call, and then the sheep come forward. Because the sheep hear His voice. And Jesus is certain that just as a shepherd calls, and His sheep most certainly come, so when He calls as the Good Shepherd, those who belong to Him will most certainly come. Verse 4, He says He leads them out, He calls them each by name, and He puts forth all His own and goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow Him. There is this certainty, not only that he can call to this sheepfold and the sheep will come, but look at verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Not a hint of uncertainty anywhere in the passage as to what the response of his sheep will be to his voice. Not a hint of uncertainty. He is utterly certain not only that his sheep will follow him, but listen, that... All his sheep will follow him. A good shepherd would never think of leaving one of his sheep behind in the sheepfold. A good shepherd would never walk up and issue the call and have all of the sheep come out and say, okay, 1, 2, 17, 18. We got 18 out of 20. That's about 90%. That's pretty good for today. Let's go. No good shepherd would ever do that. A good shepherd would make sure that he counted and that every last sheep that was his was accounted for and came to him before he headed off to pasture. He would make absolutely certain that he, if he had 20 sheep the night before when he put them in, that he had 20 sheep when he left. It is all of the shepherd's sheep that come to him. This is just like the promise in John 6, verse 37. All that the Father has given to me will come to me. Not, I hope, that all or most or at least a good portion of those that the Father has given to me will come. But all that the Father has given to me will come to me. My sheep will hear my voice and they come. No uncertainty whatsoever. Second, I want you to notice that the individual nature of this call, he calls his own sheep by what? By name. By name. It was not uncommon for shepherds to name their sheep. Like you name cats and dogs, they had names for their sheep. And they would call the sheep and the sheep would come to them by name. Just like when you call your cat or a dog, well, not your cat, but when you call your dog, your dog comes. Leave For the sake of the analogy, leave cats out of it for just a second. But you call your dog and your dog comes in response to the name. There is an individual call. And if you have a, a pack of dogs and one of them is yours and he loves you and he has a name and he knows his name and you call to that dog, he will come out of that pack and follow you. Or he'll get disciplined, right? Or you go and you fetch him and you grab him and you bring him. There's no uncertainty here. It is an individual call. He calls his own sheep by name because the shepherd knows his sheep. He knows those who are his. He can look out over the, the mass of the sheep that are there 
And he can say, that one belongs to me, and that one belongs to me, and this one belongs to me, and that one belongs to me. And he simply calls them, and they come, and he calls them all by name. It is an individual call that is being described here. And then third, I want you to notice the purpose of this call. It is so that he might lead them out to pasture. Look at verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and they might have it abundantly. Again, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The result of this call is eternal life. He calls his sheep. There is no uncertainty in his voice whatsoever that all of his sheep will not come to him or that all the sheep will come to him. He is certain of that. It is an individual, personal, unique, direct call to his sheep. And then the purpose of that call is that it results in his sheep coming and receiving eternal life and having life abundantly and being secured because they belong to this shepherd. So what is it that we are describing here? We are describing something that we would call or refer to as the effectual call. The effectual call. This is different, as you're going to see in a moment, from the general call or just the proclamation of the gospel. Jesus is referring here to an effectual call. He knows who are his because the Father has given them to him and he calls them to himself individually in order that he might give them eternal life. This is the effectual call of God, of the shepherd, to his sheep that results in them receiving eternal life. Now, some would argue and say, no, 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 hold on, Jim. There is no such thing as an effectual call. God calls all men everywhere the same. There is no distinguishing in the call itself. He calls all men to Himself in the same way. There's just a general call. And God does not give any more grace to one than He does to another. But He calls all men equally, all men the same. Some of them will come and some of them will not. But it has nothing whatsoever to do with the calling or the voice of the shepherd. Now I ask you this, does that theology fit this text? Not in any way. The only theology that fits this text and this analogy is that there are some sheep who belong to that shepherd. And when he calls, they come because they are his. And they recognize his voice. And their calling or their coming is a result of that call. That's the theology that fits this text. Jesus is saying there are some who are mine. And when I call them, they come. I give them eternal life. I keep them and no one takes them from me. I gather in all of those whom the Father has given to me because they're mine. And because they're my sheep, they will come to me. Because they hear my voice, they will run from strangers. This is the effectual call. That idea of call or calling is all the way through the New Testament. Sometimes we read through the New Testament, you will read this over and over and over again. A lot of times our eyes pass over references to this without even giving it a second thought. In fact, the very word church in the New Testament means to be called. Your salvation is being called. The fact that you are a saint, you are referred to in Scripture as the called. You are the called ones. You are the church, and the Greek word is ekklesia. Ek meaning out of, klesia from the Greek verb kaleo, which means to call. If you gather together as the church, or if you are part of the church, and I don't mean mother church as in Roman Catholic church, but if you are part of the church, the body of Christ that belongs to Him, you belong to the assembly referred to as the called out ones, the ekklesia. You have been called out of something, out of the world. And every time you use the word church, you betray that this theology is true. Every time. Because you're saying, I belong to the called out assembly. Those who have been called out of the world to something else. 
You and I do not belong to the group of people or the assembly of people who by an act of their own will and their own volition made a good decision to leave something and come to something else. That's not the assembly. We are the assembly of the called out ones. The church. The ecclesia. Those who have been called. And your salvation is referred to as your calling from God. Being called to eternal glory. Being called by His grace. That's how your salvation is referred to. All the way through the New Testament. Let me give you a few references. Romans chapter 1. I'm going I'm to read these to you because I'd rather you hear... The apostles describe this, then Jim Osmond described this. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Paul writes his epistle to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Not referred to as saints, that's not the idea behind there, but called as saints, summoned as saints of the living God. Romans 8, verses 28 and 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Who are the ones who are called according to the purpose of God? Next verse. For those whom He foreknew, not not that He prognosticated or looked down through time, the word foreknew means to set His love on someone ahead of time. Those whom He set His love on, He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified or declared righteous. And those whom He justified, He glorified. All the way through that passage, those who have been called according to God's purpose, His predetermined, predestined plan has resulted in the calling of certain people to Himself. Romans 9, verse 24, Paul says, Even us, among whom uh, whom He also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. And I say, Jim, that's just the book of Romans. That's that Calvinistic book. I hardly ever read that. Well, let me give you some other books that maybe aren't so Calvinistic. Right? How about the book of Galatians, chapter, or sorry, of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, not just saints by title. We call you saints. or refer to you as saints. No, no. You are saints by the calling act of God who has called you to himself. That's the idea. Saints, by the way, is not a term that we use to refer to people who have been dead long enough for, to, for us to forget all their bad deeds and, and make up some good deeds and, and assign a few miracles to them and then grant them this title of saint. To them. That's not it. All who are called are saints. They're set apart. Saints is a reference to believers, those who have been saved. Every individual here is a saint. You don't have to wait until you're dead and have the church declare you to be a saint. You are a saint if you are in Christ Jesus. You are a believer. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 and 24. This is one of my favorite passages. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, To those who are the called, that's whom? That's you and I. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. To Jews, this is a stumbling block. To Greeks, this is foolishness. But to those who have been called, whether Jew or Greek, to those who are the called, this is precious truth, the wisdom and power of God. Galatians 1.6, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Galatians 1.15, but when God who has set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians 4.4, There's one body, one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. You hear this? Called. Calling. You're the called. You have been called. 2 Thessalonians 2.13-14, and 14, We should always give thanks for God to you, for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Second Timothy 1.9, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in the Lord Jesus Christ from all eternity. First Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. You've been called to God's eternal glory. Second Peter 1.3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. This is what Jesus was referring to in John 6 verse 44 when he says, no one has the ability, no one can, no one has the ability to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is the calling that Jesus is describing there. It's all the way through the New Testament, all the references to called and calling. Now listen, unbelievers are never Never described this way in Scripture. Never. It cannot be said of anyone who is an unbeliever that they have been called in this way. Only the church is the called out ones. So an Arminian would have to say, and and an Arminian would be somebody who would say, no, no, there is no specific drawing or wooing of God or individual call to people. Just a general call. You proclaim the gospel and that's all the further it goes. There's no specific individual calling of God of his people, his sheep, to himself. An Arminian would say that. In doing that, you rob all of these passages of their most beautiful and profound meaning. These passages then mean nothing. Because an Arminian would have to say that God has done nothing more for Jim Osman than he has done for Adolf Hitler. Nothing. We both heard the same call. What distinguishes me from Adolf Hitler? I guess I came. Right? I did, I did this on my own power and my own strength. But that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that I have been called to His eternal glory. No unbeliever can say that. Because until an unbeliever comes to the shepherd, they have not been called. But all who have been called will come. His sheep will hear His voice and they will come to Him. So are all men called equally? That is not the calling that Jesus is describing in John chapter 10. There is a calling by which all men are called. It is called the general call, or referred to as the general call, And the general call is just the proclamation of the gospel. When we command men to repent and to believe the gospel, that is a call that goes out to all men. We share the gospel and we tell people, you are sinners who need to be reconciled to God. And we beg them, we beseech them, we implore them, we we argue with them, we beseech you, be reconciled today to God by the death of His Son. And when we call out to people like that, that's the general call. And Scripture refers to that. Revelation 22 issues a general call at the very end of the book of the, uh, the very end of the Bible. The Spirit and the Bride say, "Come." Let the one who hears say, "Come," and let the one who is thirsty come. Let one who wishes take the water of life without cost. That's a general call. Come, come to the Son. Repent, believe, receive life. He who comes to me and eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood, he will never eat or hunger or thirst again. He will never hunger or thirst again, because I will give to him eternal life. And so you can say to all men. Come to the Savior. That's the general call. Last night I had the opportunity to preach the gospel at an event. And I did so. And I I knew as I'm standing there before a crowd that's about the same size as this, uh, maybe a little bit more, that there are unbelievers who are sitting in this crowd. And so I am freely confident and perfectly confident to be able to say to people, if you come to Christ today, you will find an atonement for your sin. You will find forgiveness and redemption and eternal life. And God will do that if you will repent and believe the gospel. And I beg of you today, be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. 
Come. That offer of the gospel is to be given freely and fully and as, as liberally as we can to all men. Go into all world and preach the gospel, commanding to all men everywhere to repent because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having given proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17. That's the job. Go out and give that call to all men. But listen, in that general call, through the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation, those who belong to the Son will hear his voice and they will come. That is the confidence behind evangelism, by the way. If I didn't believe in this doctrine that God will, through my efforts of proclaiming the gospel, draw his sheep to himself, if I didn't have that confidence, I would never proclaim the gospel. Why would I? What's the use in that? But because I believe that through the proclamation of the gospel, the shepherd calls his sheep to himself, and he does so unfailingly, and he does so perfectly, and he gathers in all those who the Father has given to him, we can share the gospel fully and freely with all people. That's the general call. But in the general call, there is a call within a call. And that's the effectual call that calls men to the shepherd. Those who belong to the shepherd are called to the shepherd. Now, some people would raise an objection to this. And you might say, well, Jim, that doesn't sound very fair. It doesn't sound very fair for God to call some men differently than he calls other men. Well, is it fair? Is it fair? I, I don't see anything unfair with God calling those who belong to Him to Himself. That's not unfair to me. I guess it would go back to what you think a righteous and holy God owes to you or to all rebellious sinners. What does God owe to you? Does He owe this grace to all men? Is He obligated to show any grace to anyone, let alone this grace to all men? Or is God free to have mercy upon whom He will have mercy and to show compassion to whom He will show compassion? Friends, I would argue for the freedom of God to do as He pleases. And it is only unfair if all men deserve this and God gives it to some and not others. That is unfair. But when all men do not deserve this, in fact, all men deserve the opposite, damnation, it is not unfair for God to say, I will for my own glory save some so that my righteousness might be declared. That is not unfair. That's not unfair in the least. It is only unfair if God owes this to all men and He only gives it to some. And you see, you will think this is unfair if you think you are spanky and God owes you a lot. And everyone else is spanky too. And if God God doesn't give it to the other spanky guy, but he gives it to this spanky guy, well, that's unfair. But it's not unfair for God to call and to give to those who are his whatsoever he might choose to give to them. And this all comes back to the issue of ownership too, doesn't it? Ownership. Who is it that owns the sheep? Some people would say that Jesus doesn't own any of the sheep in the sheepfold until they come to him. You see, it is their coming to him that makes them his. It is not them being his that makes them come to him. Do you understand the difference? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? I am saying to you that because he has certain sheep that are his, whom the Father in eternity past has given to the Son, because of that reality, all of those sheep will then come to him. But the ownership comes before the coming comes. Others would say, no, no, it is the coming that makes them His. Well, I would ask you this. Is that the theology behind the text here? Does the shepherd, in our analogy, own none of the sheep, but go up to the sheepfold and call out and take sheep from other flocks and make them His? Is that how the analogy reads? What is the theology of the text? The shepherd owns some of these sheep. They're His. And so he has legitimate access to the sheep. He comes up to the sheepfold which is all of humanity, and he calls out those who belong to him, and they come to him, and he leads them out, and he gives them eternal life. That's the analogy of the text. 
By the way, isn't it a mark of a thief and a robber that they come up to the sheepfold not owning any of them, but call some to themselves and make those sheep his own by virtue of calling? That's how a thief and a robber behaves himself. But not Jesus. He's the good shepherd. He owns a portion of the sheep. So as the sincere shepherd, he can come up to the sheepfold because he owns some of those who are in there, in the mass of humanity. And he calls them out to himself. So how is this voice heard then? How do we hear this voice? I would tell you this. It's not an audible voice like Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. It's not something you hear with a physical ear. It's not something you hear with a spiritual ear in the sense that, whoa, what was that? I think I heard a voice. That must be the shepherd calling me to come to himself. That's not it at all. When you think of hearing this voice, do me a favor. Do not overanalyze this and turn this into some mystical, mysterious, uh, uh, quasi-foggy type of voice in the head, gobbledygook type thing. It's none of that at all. How do you know if you have heard the voice of the shepherd? Have you come to him? Do you have eternal life? Have you been born again? Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ and be given a new heart and a new life? Do you have eternal life? If you have eternal life, then you have come to Him. It's that simple. Listen, there was a point in the, in the, in the course and life of every person who is in Christ when they heard through the proclamation of the gospel that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and they said to themselves, I am one of those all. That group that describes all have sinned, I'm one of those. And furthermore, I have seen myself as one who deserves the wrath of God for my sin. I understand that if I were to die today, I would be in big trouble with God because my sin is unforgiven and He's a just and a holy God and I am under His wrath and His condemnation justly because of my sin, because of my rebellion and my acts of violating and breaking His law. And then you heard about the Savior who came to pay the price for your sin. And you said, I need a Savior who will, who has paid the penalty for my sin. I understand that Christ is that Savior who has paid the penalty for my sin. And now you understand through Scripture, because somebody shared it with you, that the response to that is repentance and faith. And you turn from your sin, and you place your faith in the Son of God. That's your calling. That's your calling. How did it happen? Did you hear an audible voice? You didn't hear an audible voice. You just said to yourself, I desperately need Christ. And He has offered Himself to me. And I must come to Him and I must have Him. He is mine and I will not rest until I am certain that my sins are forgiven and that I belong to Him and He belongs to me. And you came. That's salvation. That's the calling that we're talking about. Not not a mystical gobbledygook. Not an, an audible voice. But you came. Because you saw in Christ something that was irresistible and you had to have Him. Now the next question is, is this calling that we are talking about, is it ultimately resistible? Can the sheep who belong to Christ resist this call? Can they resist this call? This is somewhat of a tricky question. Do you think it's possible that some of the sheep inside the sheepfold would hear the voice of the shepherd and say, you know what, it's nice in here. These walls provide shade. I met some nice sheep friend over the, over the nights and I finally got a nice place on the ground to lay down here in the shade and I can hang out here. I'm finally comfortable. Why get up and go walking around looking for my food? When I know that the shepherd in all likelihood is going to go out and wander through the field and come back here tonight and I can be here waiting for them and with the rest of my sheep friends. So do you think it's possible that some of the sheep might have resisted the call of a shepherd and remained inside the sheepfold? There's an interesting phrase in verse four and I want you to see it. When he puts forth all his own. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. That word puts forth is a word that means to expel 
or to kick out, and it has an air of force about it, an air of force. It is, in fact, the very same word that was used to describe the Pharisees expelling from the synagogue the man born blind back in chapter 9, verse 34, when it says, and they put him out, they kicked him out of the synagogue. It has to it an air of force or coercion, physical force or coercion. So is it possible or conceivable that some of the sheep might have decided to stay inside the sheepfold and resist the voice of the shepherd? Entirely possible. That's why verse 4 says, when the shepherd has put out all of his own, the shepherd has the sheep come out, he counts them up, 18 out of 20. I'm missing two. I'm going into the sheepfold, grab those two sheep, and he puts them out of the sheepfold. Why does the shepherd do this? Well, in contrast to the Pharisees who kicked and expelled the man out for their own good and not for the good of the man, the shepherd of his sheep knows that he must put out his own sheep, not for his good, but for their good, because it is possible for the sheep sometimes to not even understand what is in their best interests. And the the shepherd will use coercion if necessary to put them out of the sheepfold because they're his and because he loves them, he puts them out. Get out. We're going out to pasture. I don't want pasture. It doesn't matter what you want. You're getting out of the sheepfold. You have to admit that Christian history is filled with both kinds of sheep. Those who come quite willingly and those who come quite resistantly. Some people, and maybe you're here, have sat in in an assembly and you heard the voice of Christ through the preaching of His Word. You heard the voice of the shepherd and you said, oh yeah, of course that makes sense. I need that. Well, I've never heard that before. And you came and you repented and you believed without almost even seemingly a second thought. And then there are others who kick and resist and are hostile and they're war and they fight and they don't want it. Men like Saul of Tarsus, Saul, Saul, why do you kick against the goads? Right? Sometimes the shepherd puts out his sheep. He needs to. So can the sheep resist the shepherd and the call of the shepherd? They can resist. And they do resist. But the question is this. Which ultimately wins? The will of the shepherd or the will of the sheep? The answer is the will of the shepherd. Because the shepherd knows what is best for the sheep. And resist as they might, the shepherd will make life miserable for his sheep until that sheep finally bends the knee and says, you know what? I can't resist anymore. As C.S. Lewis called Jesus the hound of heaven. He hounded me until he got me. Some sheep come willingly. Some sheep need to be coerced. So it is possible to resist, but not ultimately. Why? Because the shepherd will gather in all his own. Resist as you must. Resist as you may. Resist as you want. But if you belong to him, he will get you. And he will not give up and not relent until he does have you. So then the next and what would be the last question, thankfully you're saying, does this happen in violence to the will of the sheep? Does the shepherd do violence to the will of the sheep? How many of you got saved here against your will? You're sitting here this morning saying, I'm going to heaven because I'm one of the elect. I was one of his sheep. And I'm not looking forward to that eternity. I would rather be in hell because I have no desire for this salvation or eternal life whatsoever. But I have been dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom against my will. And so here I sit. Anybody here willing to say that that happened? Or how many of you would say, no, 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 even though I resisted, at the end, I came quite willingly. You came quite willingly, didn't you? Nobody has ever saved against their will. That's ridiculous. And this doctrine, and and no, what you would call Calvinist or Reformed teacher would say this, nobody is saved against their will. They are saved through their will. But listen, here's the beauty of it. Knowing that the sheep belong to him, the shepherd says, I will take, remove their heart of stone, I will give them a heart of flesh. And I will change their affections and their love for me and I will free them from their sin. 
so that the most natural thing for this liberated and loving will to do is to believe upon my son and they will find Christ irresistible. Irresistible in the sense not that they are coerced or driven or beaten from behind, but irresistible in the sense that my wife is irresistible to me. She doesn't force me to love her. I find her irresistible. And I am irresistibly drawn to my wife. The Lord does the same thing in the hearts of His sheep so that we come, we come quite willingly because why? He is irresistible to us. And we must have Him. We must have Him. And so we come to Him willingly. And that drawing of God which makes Christ precious to His sheep where the sheep say, I've heard the voice and I need to have Him. I want Him. I love Him. And I will come to Him. That is the calling that is described here. The shepherd, the sincere shepherd, is a summoning shepherd. He comes up to his flock. He calls out his own sheep by name, and they come. And he puts out all of his own and takes them out to pasture and gives them eternal life. Now, there's something else about the voice of the shepherd, and I'm going to save this for later on in John chapter 10, and that is this. When we talk about hearing the voice of the shepherd, does this refer to hearing a still small voice, nudgings or promptings and impressions? Should I be expecting personalized revelation? Is that what Jesus is describing? You should already be able to answer that. Does that that sound anything like what he's describing? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about sanctification or leading. We'll deal with that later. And the other thing we're going to have to deal with later is the next two points, right? The voice of the shepherd provides a means of calling a sheep. We didn't get any further than that. And next week we'll look at the ownership that he has over those who are his. When did that happen? Why did that happen? What is the result of that? Jesus has no problem at all differentiating between those who are not his and those who belong to him. And you and I should have no problem with that distinction at all. I have no problem saying that unbelievers do not belong to him in the sense that I belong to him and have always belonged to him as long as I've been alive. So we'll look at the ownership next week of the sheep and then the third thing, which is the security that the voice of the shepherd provides in verse 5. So let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, these things are, are so magnificent and, and eternal and infinite in their, um, in, in their depth. And our hearts marvel that you would love us at all, let alone set your love on us from eternity past. We thank you because that's all we can do that you have given us to your son. That is not something that we had anything to do with. We are simply the recipients of your free, unmerited grace. And as those who belong to your son, we thank you for it. If there are ones sitting here this morning who have never responded to the voice of that shepherd, I pray, O God, that you would call them to your son, draw them to your son, that they might have life and they might have it abundantly. May they see in Christ all that is precious and irresistible and all that fills their need so that they may come to Him willingly and give their love and obedience to Him, that you might be glorified in and through your people and your church, both now and in eternity we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.